Take a network break. Help yourself to our super heavy virtual donuts before they experience a rapid unscheduled disassembly and join us for our regular cruise through this week's IT news. We're sponsored today by Wi-Fi and private 5G tools from Hamina Wireless. If you ever need to design, refresh, or optimize your wireless network, go for Hamina's tools. They help you understand wireless coverage and performance and find optimal radio placements, configurations, and spot performance bottlenecks. For a limited time, Hamina is offering free wireless design training to Packet Pushers listeners. Go to Hamina.com slash pushers. We just want to mention that we've got a new show coming on the network starting in May. It's Heavy Wireless. Uh, yeah, so Heavy Wireless is a pretty exciting one. We've always wanted to cover Wi-Fi, but we haven't been able to recruit the right host. And recently, Keith Parsons, who is well-known throughout the wireless community, is one of the father figures and the um, uh, operator of the WLPC, Wireless Land Professional Conference, very popular, sells out every year, said that he would be interested in joining on board. And so we've got him set up. First show is going to publish in, what, 10 days, Drew? I think first week in May. First week of May, First week of May. So if you just do a search for Heavy Wireless in your browser, you'll be able to subscribe and see the show when it first turns up. And we'd love to hear your feedback on that show, as always. You can always talk to us on packetpushers.net slash FU. Tell us what you really think, or just send us some follow-up, you know, whichever way makes you happier. And um, don't forget all of our other shows, because we've got Heavy Strategy, which um, we did some interesting shows recently, and I think we've taking a turn in upcoming shows, we're actually going to start re- interviewing people sort of tangentially related to IT. So we've got corporate psychologists, motivators, things like that. So we're going to talk about how IT hmm. strategies sort of, if you talk to people who are professionals in sideways disciplines, if you know what I mean, like really, really big companies do use, you know, corporate psychologists and motivators and all the, sure. you know, process experts and things like that. And so um, Jonah Till Johnson from Nemertes knows quite a few of those people. And so we should be able to find them uh, to get on the show and start talking. And if anybody like you who listens to Heavy Strategy wants to come on and argue with us, I mean, debate the finer points of, of strategy, then please do. Yeah, you can do all that at packetpressures.net slash FU. And just also to bring it back to the heavy wireless, uh, I believe this isn't going to be in the two big feeds that we have that throw all the shows in. So if you want to subscribe to heavy wireless, you should do that uh, as an individual feed to make sure you get all the episodes. Yes, people complained there was too much content in the fat pipe in the full feed, so we don't keep shoving everything into there. Sorry. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Don't want to overwhelm you. You just get what you need. That's right. All right, let's dive into the news. Uh, first, Prosimo, that's a startup in the multi-cloud networking space. They've announced new capabilities in what they're calling the cloud-native networking suite. The big idea is that you can build networks across the big three public clouds using Prosimo. And under the hood, Prosimo is using the cloud-native construct so that you don't have to get into the weeds with the difference between how AWS, Azure, or Google do their networking. Yeah, you took the you know more about this than I do. I've only dug into them a few times, and they've been a sponsor on the network, you know, disclosure. Um they're doing what I think is sort of like the network as a service where they use a lot of software-based appliances and an overlay network that either transits the the public cloud backbones or various available non-public backbones to get optimal pathing. And now they're starting to lay some services over the top for things like security and, and visibility. Is that right? Is that where we're at? Essentially, yes, they're using the cloud native constructs inside each of the big clouds to actually build networks in the cloud. But instead of you having to, you know, handcraft each network in each cloud, you use Prosimo as kind of the mm. 
the overlay management system to, to build those networks. So it's not just about connecting multiple public clouds. It's also about building the networks inside each public cloud. If you want to connect, yeah. you know, different regions, different availability zones, different VPCs, uh, you can do all that with with Prosimo. Yeah, when you have three incompatible technologies, guess what you have to do? <laughs> Right. <laughs> There's a lot of yeah. artisanal hand hand stitching that has to yeah. go on, and they're trying to make that a little easier That's for you. That's basically the pitch. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. They're saying they're handling all VGP configuration, all the routing under the hood, mm. uh, and you can get in and get into the guts if you need to. Uh, but if you don't want to, it's not a requirement. Yeah. So they've sort of been moving down that path for a while. There's a few competitors in that space and that network. I generally think of this as network as a service and. Most of the network as a service offerings are kind of limited to the off-prem clouds at the moment because that's where the major problem is because if you're trying to stitch together Google, Oracle, AWS and Azure or some subset thereof and you want them to all be look the same and run the same and get visibility across all of them, well, all of those people use incompatible fundamental ways of doing it. So you have to have something that's stitching them together. Right. Yeah, so they've got uh, three modules that they're announcing. Uh, they include Visual Transit Builder. It's using a drag and drop visual uh, element so you can build the network and connect resources. Then there's Cloud Tracer. This is a topology view and flow tracking service. And then Adaptive Service Insertion so you can drop in things like firewalls into the, the networks you're building. So clo closing in on no code, I would think. That's sort of, a, you know, if you've got a GUI... They, you know, they. I appreciate the fact that they didn't use the term mm. no code, but yes, I think they would position this as a no code solution. I think some people would look at it as a no code, but... Really, it's what you need. You need a graphical builder because, you you know, every one of these clouds has a different way of putting constructs and different language and different words for the same thing. So right. you really want, you know, there is a market for this, I think. There is, yeah. Uh, I will say that customers have to install a Prosimo gateway software in each in a VPC for each region that they want to build network in, and this gateway then runs a discovery function to find all the other VPCs and transit gateways or you know the other cloud versions of those in your region. Uh, the gateway software runs in a Kubernetes cluster, and I think the key value proposition they're pushing is segmentation. So you can set up rules for which applications, which services, and even which clients are allowed to communicate with each other, uh, and you can do all this in the Prosimo console rather than fiddling with VPC controls and IP addresses and so on in the guts of the cloud service itself. Yeah, you could use Terraform to do all of this, but boy, oh boy, that's a lot of effort. And you're probably going to make mistakes, right? <laughs> Artisanally handcrafted Terraform <laughs> configurations were probably not the right tool. Yes. Yes. Uh, I did think I heard them say that the gateway that you have to install sits in the data plane. Uh, I didn't get to dig deeper on this when we had the briefing with them, but I'm wondering if this means all your region's traffic has to come through the gateway for policy enforcement. And if so, that has, I think, implications for performance and how you're going to size your instance and what it's going to cost you. Um, so we need to get more clarity from them on that. We can do a follow-up at some oh, point. Well, customers have to do their own due diligence. There's your challenge. <laughs> <laughs> some homework. homework. We're giving out yeah. homework now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it, but we'll move on. Uh, Broadcom has announced a new ASIC in the Jericho family. This is the Jericho 3-AI. It's being positioned as a chip for building Ethernet fabrics to support AI workloads and the training of large-scale models. The chip supports 28.8 terabits per second of throughput. Yeah, uh, this chip's been coming for a while. I would imagine that if you looked around the market, you would expect Broadcom has already announced a 28-terabit chipset in the Trident and the Tomahawk families, and then the Jericho normally comes last out of that set. So, you know, Tomahawk 3, Trident 3, then it comes Tomahawk 3, and now we've got Jericho 3. And, of course, AI is the very latest fashion, so with some good AI washing, we've managed to slap AI all over the press release, which is, and there's really nothing about this 
um, that I can see. Um, I did ask for a briefing deck, but wasn't able, uh, didn't get one in time. Um, this looks to me like the standard Jericho, which is a high speed, high forwarding, low um, low services. So you can't really do a lot to the packet. You don't have deep buffers in this chipset. You don't have multiple manipulations in the pipelines. It's really just about getting the maximum amount of speed uh, from one side to the other. And it's a progression. The ASIC can continue to go up. I mean, the ASIC is huge. It's bigger than an Intel CPU. And that's a very big chipset. Um, and it's a single chip. It's not like mm -hmm. a chiplet under there in the package. It's just one big ASIC. So th there is a lot of magic going on in here. Um, it is uh, it is interesting that they took a lot of shots at NVIDIA's InfiniBand. It's not often we see Broadcom taking a shot at its competitors, but in this case, they definitely were. I mean, it, it does seem like it's very much positioned against InfiniBand and, you know, NVIDIA Mellanox is uh, a leader in that space and InfiniBand uh, has been touted as, you know, if you need to build a fabric for doing AI processing, tra training large AI models, InfiniBand may be the way to go. Sometimes organizations don't want to have mm. two different networks, so they'd like to build, you know, an AI fabric using Ethernet that they understand. And so uh, well, Brock comes here to say, yeah, you don't have to go to InfiniBand. Well, InfiniBand's got some definite advantages. When you're actually talking about moving data around... And specifically, when you're doing memory-to-memory -memory transfers, RDMA over InfiniBand mm -hmm. works really, really well and definitely better than Ethernet does. And that has been one of the reasons that the high-performance computing crowd are still using InfiniBand when the clusters aren't too large and money's not a problem. And keep in mind, Broadcom doesn't have any InfiniBand, so... <laughs> when you don't have InfiniBand, you sell yeah, Ethernet. Yeah, that's right. You know, yes. you sell what you have. You don't sell what you don't have. Um, and Mellanox was also quite successful with its InfiniBand products. So when Infinity acquired them, I suspect, in, you know, there was a bit of a heartfelt, you know, pro meeting going on that said, well, we need to make a decision here. Do we go with InfiniBand or do we go with Ethernet? And somebody sort of pointed out that the RDMA over Ethernet's really not that mature and not that reliable. And they went, right. InfiniBand it is. You know, I'm sure customers had some import and there was a range of other things, but we haven't really completely solved the RDMA over Ethernet for very high performance. But um, so it is weird to see them sort of, you know, NVIDIA AI. But keep in mind too that these AI clusters are usually not more than sort of 40 or 50 racks. They're usually 30 kilowatt racks and they've got a lot of GPUs in them, but actually not a lot of servers mm -hmm. and not a lot of networking actually goes on. So the, where InfiniBand does fall down is that its scaling is not very good. And if they start to move out into the thousands of machines in an AI cluster, then Ethernet is going to be the primary data transfer. Uh, in this case, uh, AI, uh, NVIDIA is basically using InfiniBand for all, just for the AI processing. There'll still be Ethernet interfaces. But at some point, I think Ethernet will mm -hmm. come back, just not now, right? I did see a tech field day with Arista talking about building an Ethernet fabric for AI and using things like RDMA over uh, Ethernet. I think they call it the Rocky. Is that the ROC? Yeah. The, is that the yeah, RDMA, RDMA over Ethernet? Yeah, Rocky. Ethernet, yeah. Rocky. Um, never, really, yes. never really took Rocky. off and never really kind of worked. So it does work, but only in sort of very limited circumstances. InfiniBand is sort of comparable to Fiber Channel. You just sort of make a whole other network. And it's dedicated to that thing, so you can't mm -hmm. mess it up. You're not combining storage traffic and memory copies <laughs> and data transfers. I mean, it does feel like building Ethernet fabrics for AI does feel like trying to shoehorn Ethernet into 
something it wasn't natively built to do, but you can make it happen if you Ethernet want to. Ethernet was never designed anything than to work on a quarter-inch copper core. You know, they ran down buildings with vampire taps. You can't say that anymore. People will make Ethernet work for anything, you know. Just because it's That's stupid, true. then it works. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not stupid, right? <laughs> so, I mean, Ethernet's celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. <laughs> like, oh yeah, oh, yes, it's it's been very successful at merging, you know, growing into other use the cases. The Ethernet yes, Fire sure. of fifty years ago looks nothing like the Ethernet Fire of twenty twenty three. I assure you. But I mean, AI does really, really need those fast memory transfers, and those AI processing clusters are not particularly large, and they're just very dense in GPUs. And the ability to move memory to memory to aid the processing is a thing. And I just don't think Ethernet, Rocky, RDMA, whatever you want to use for that. MPI is just not here for that. So uh, Broadcom does claim that the chip is optimized to handle the unique characteristics of AI workloads. So when AI, you're talking about a low number of large, long-lived flows, and those normally blow the buffers on ASICs. And so uh, I guess what Broadcom's saying is that they've retuned the buffers to be able to handle less numbers of flows, but long-lived large volume ones so that they don't uh, mm-hmm. you know, blow up the buffering or, or overload the outputs and input queues. And they also talk about perfect load balancing, which sprays traffic over all links in the fabric. So to get as close to possible to actual genuine maximum network utilization. And then they go on and say things like uh, congestion-free operation with end-to-end traffic scheduling ensures no flow collisions and no jitter. That's a big claim. Um, I imagine you'll need to use a fairly high level of discipline to make sure that happens over Ethernet. You would basically have to build a non-blocking fabric to be able to make those guarantees. Right. And then, of course, you could potentially build a very high Radix fabric to scale to 32,000 GPUs, which is what I put out, said to you a minute ago, you know, this is really built, but you're not looking at 32,000 GPUs in a AI cluster today. It's much smaller than that for now, um, but that will be coming. So we'll see how that works out. But anyway, more progress here on these chipsets and there'll be, uh, I think they're already talking about, you know, this is a 32 by 800 gigabit per second switch. How many people in enterprise IT need 32 ports of 800 gig, Drew. Well, it's definitely very much a specialist yeah. uh, use, but the, the people who need it are going to pay for it. Well, so. I would imagine that most enterprises could get by with a pair. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this, is, this isn't targeted at the enterprise, no, yeah, or at so. least not most enterprises. We'll yeah, this isn't just for your typical data center. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move on. We're going to be talking about Dent. This is an open source network OS under the Linux Foundation. It has announced version 3.0 of the NOS. Uh, I think at this point, the primary consumer of Dent is Amazon, which originally developed uh, the, the NOS and then brought it to the Linux Foundation, but uh, they are continuing to iterate on it. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that reminds me of this is that how many people would look at AWS as a, a suitable steward for an open source project and fondly regard them as a valuable and worthy partner. Does that strike you as a viable state? Not if it just stayed within Amazon or AWS, but I think that's why they gave it to the Linux Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can give it to the Linux Foundation all you like, but that doesn't mean that any, you know, you still, most open source projects, especially in the nascent phase, they need a master contributor or a master shepherd, you know, somebody yes. who's investing. And yes. I've got to say, it's very hard to look at AWS and believe that they'll be doing things that are good for the community instead of just things that are good for AWS. And at any point in time, AWS could just, nope. That's it. We're out. And you could be, you know, really stuck with this. So if you can get over that, I think that Dent OS remains the most likely open alternative to Sonic, but unlikely. Dent OS does have a significant technology difference. It uses um, 
it believes that the right place for certain features is actually in the kernel, which means they modify the kernel to get mm-hmm. better performance or something. But Sonic doesn't. It goes to user space, and people I've spoken about say that you don't need to be in the kernel to be successful, and in fact, there's lots of reasons why being in user space is faster, better, and gooder, and they're smarter than me, so I believe them. Uh, so I am mixed. Um, the announcement itself doesn't really say anything. I recommend you don't read it mainly because it was written by a PR agency and it's just a bunch of bloviation. So, you know, whatever. Uh, just to be clear, there are ODM partners involved with Dent as well, including Edgecore, Delta, and Marvell. So if you are actually interested in running the NAS, you can get it on a Switch. I will note that Amazon has also contributed an Edge Gateway specification to the Open Compute project, where the gateway can run either Dent or Sonic, um, that the gateway supports Sire, the Switch abstraction interface, so you can run Dent or Sonic on top. And I'm not sure how much to read into this, but it does feel like Amazon may be hedging its Dent bet here. And the whole reason I think that they built Dent is because Amazon has this vision of, of building retail outlets where you don't need to have cashiers. You just have a bunch of sensors and IP cameras and you sort of walk in, take what you need and walk out and Amazon will find a way to bill you without you having to actually see a cashier. And so they need a robust network to build these retail stores and that's why they built Dent. Uh, it seems like a very specific use case. So, and, and again, I feel like Dent isn't making a huge splash in the open uh, NOS mm. area, but it is there and it is a sonic alternative if you're looking for open source. Yeah, um, I tweeted out something this week on my Ethereum Mind account that Amazon now has 2,000 cameras and over 100,000 sensors in the stores. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. what the Enterprise Edge Gateway is there to... <laughs> to manage, yes, and support. 2,000 yeah. cameras, mm-hmm. Drew. You know, I thought, you know, tracking on the on the internet was bad, but, oh boy, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're not going to have, yeah. you know, registers to check people out at, you yeah. got to watch So if you're going to have that sort of number yeah. of devices in a single store, uh, then you're going to need a switch that's not just forwarding frames, it's going to be doing some more magic, I think. You're looking at, you know, yeah. various extra features to support the weirdness that you want in that rather specific thing. So. Uh, one fun thing I will say about uh, Dent, the nomenclature, if you haven't guessed it already, comes from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, um, and the versions releases are named after characters from the series, so version 1 was called Arthur, uh, version 2 was Beeblebrox, and version 3 is named Cynthia. Uh, I was like, I don't recall Cynthia in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, so I had to look it up. It, it's a deep reference from the original radio broadcast, so tip of the geek hat to the Dent <laughs> folks for that one. I can barely remember listening to the original BBC version. That's a long time ago. Wow. Yeah, they went deep for that oh, one. So, oh, yeah, there's a little Easter egg well, for folks to for go C. look up for they themselves. A, B, C. One, two, three. Oh, there you go. That's why they went. So, oh, got it. Okay. Mm. So I'm going to have to make a guess about D. Mm. Anyway, uh, moving, <laughs> sticking with uh, uh, switching Edgecore, which makes Whitebox hardware and Aviz Networks. They've teamed up to integrate the Sonic Network OS with Aviz Networks container-based orchestrator. So basically an Aviz uh, container can run as a microservice on a Sonic switch. And then you've got the Aviz controller for orchestration support and the collection of tem- telemetry. So I guess if you're running a fleet of Sonic switches, it sounds like Aviz wants to be part of your network management platform, and then you can buy the hardware from Edgecore. Yeah. I was trying to work out why this was important, why it merited a press release. Yeah. Why this Why this, <laughs> Why this? this happened? <laughs> why would I care? Which is pretty much the first question I ask myself when I look at anything to bring out onto the network break. Um, and I was wandering around doing various searches on Avid and Edgecore and whatever, and it turns out that... Uh, Aviz recently appointed two Microsoft people to, quite senior Microsoft people, to its advisory board. Dave Maltz, who's very well known as being sort of the the chief nerd, chief technologist inside of Azure Networking, and Zaid Khan, who's the general manager for cloud and AI advanced systems at Microsoft. 
and he's a, a public face of various parts of, of uh, Azure infrastructure. And that would suggest that perhaps Microsoft is taking an interest in EVs. There's something there that Microsoft wants. And Edge Core is likely part of Microsoft's supply chain. I mean, it's one of the biggest white box manufacturers in the world today, especially white box networking. And so the suggestion here would be that Aviz has caught Microsoft's attention, so running up a partnership with Edgecore. So once again, that's fine for off-prem clouds. I'm not 100% sure whether there's anything here for enterprise IT. If there is, I can't see it. I, definitely, I can see the connections here because, again, Microsoft is the the big backer of Sonic. So having folks on Microsoft folks on the Aviz board does make this uh, tie up a little, make a little bit more sense to me. Yeah. Aviz is that sort of not a, it, if you're in the enterprise and you're thinking about running Sonic, that's that's a very exclusive club right there. And then if you're actually talking about using right. Aviz inside of Sonic as a container and an application stack, that's an even smaller subset. So let's see how that most people would be running FRR and you know that type of traditional approach rather than you know or you'd be getting Sonic from somebody like Juniper and you're running Abstra over Sonic on their hardware sort of thing. So see how it works out. Right, or Dell offers a supported Sonic uh, version and I think some management capabilities as That's well. That's right, so, and yeah, Cisco will do Sonic, a, a but limited. only for um, mega cloud companies. They won't do it for small, uh, for enterprises, so. Yeah, but I think, you know, Microsoft has heavily invested in Sonic and I guess they think the wider the Sonic community, the better for them in the long run, so that may explain some of this uh, integration. Yeah, and, and coming back to what I said before about Dent, Microsoft is a... I mean, on the face of it, a, a much more approachable custodian. You know, they originated Sonic, put it out there, and then continued to. Uh, that's the comparison I'm trying to draw there. Which is, you know, weird for Microsoft, not <laughs> an appellation I would give them being yeah. a contributor, yeah. a, a trusted contributor to the open community. But there yeah, it is. Times change. Let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Hammond Wireless. Do you want to create better wireless networks, but haven't had the time to look into it? Hamina wireless design tools help design and optimize wireless networks of all kinds, including Wi-Fi, private cellular, Bluetooth, and Zigbee. Hamina Network Planner helps network engineers find optimal access point placements, maximize wireless coverage and capacity, and predict network coverage and performance, all without ever going on site. The tool produces wireless heat maps in real time with very high accuracy in 3D. Other wireless planners can cost thousands of dollars. Hamina Network Planner starts at just $390 and is extremely easy to learn and use, even with limited Wi-Fi design experience. The tool also calculates your cabling and PoE needs and automatically creates build of materials and comprehensive reports. The tool supports all Wi-Fi vendors, including Ubiquiti, Cisco, Aruba, Extreme, and more. For a limited time, Hamina is offering free wireless design training for Packet Pushers listeners. Just go to hamina.com pushers. That's H-A-M-I-N-A dot com slash pushers. And now back to the podcast. All right, uh, some other news for you. Ariaka, they offer SD-WAN and SASE services and engaging in a partnership with Checkpoint Software Technologies to offer a managed SaaS offering globally. The integration brings together SD-WAN services from Ariaka and Checkpoint's Harmony Connect for cloud-delivered security services and Checkpoint's Quantum Edge Virtual Firewall. Uh, I had to scratch my head at this one again, Drew. Checkpoint's product strategy remains focused around appliance-based firewalls. That is, you buy a piece of hardware and there's a bunch of software on it. It does have an SD-WAN product called Quantum SD-WAN, which is a software app which runs on top of their firewalls. So if you want to run Checkpoint's SD-WAN, you have to buy one of their firewalls. That's hard and expensive and painful. And the sales pitch basically says, well, if you've got our firewalls, you can have SD-WAN. It's not like we sell an SD-WAN service that's secure sort of thing. So they do have an off-premise content scanning service, 
and you know the the whole solution that checkpoint offers would be staggeringly expensive so unless you're a, a true believer in the checkpoint way you wouldn't i wouldn't see too many people saying you know checkpoint for SD-WAN that makes sense to me and so Ariaka of course has been doing arguably some form of SD-WAN long before other people sort of thought about it they've been trunking people's traffic in the early days like 20 years ago over private backbones to try and say that they could be faster mm-hmm. than the internet which is now a fairly common right. pitch today um, and I couldn't work out why they were partnered together and I dug around and eventually realized only Ariaka released the press release checkpoint hasn't got anything on their website that I could find so maybe this is Ariaka looking for ways to find customers and checkpoints kind of like sure Join the team. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why yeah. not? There's a room over there of checkpoint partners. Join in. You know? so, yes. Maybe down. I'm misreading good it. For us, good that's for you. all I could find. I just couldn't work out what the motivation was. Yeah, I, I haven't kept up with Checkpoint in years, uh, but I'm not surprised to see them in this space. And frankly, th- their approach is the same as Fortinet's. Fortinet will sell you their firewall and, and throw an SD-WAN uh, sort of as a freebie. So Yeah, when it's, definitely it's a not a freebie in the Checkpoint world. You have to go and buy a... They talk about adding well, it as a right, software blade. A in other words, it's an app on top of their firewalls, and you'd pay extra for it. Whereas well, in Fortinet, the SD WAN stuff yeah. appears to be free. Except, at least that's what they say to us all the time. So, um, yeah. I would, you know, it. And the people I speak to who have Checkpoint products today generally don't have nice things to say about it. They generally point out how difficult it is to deal with the company and to deal with its resellers and to deal, particularly, with its tech support. So it's hard to imagine my care factor for this whole announcement is about, yeah. Well, then we will leave it there and move on. Uh, Criminal hackers have released sensitive data stolen from Comscope. That's a network equipment provider in the U.S. Uh, Data includes technical drawings, internal documents, any social security numbers, and banking details of thousands of employees. Yeah, this one, the reason why I care about this one is that Comscope is technically a network equipment provider. That is, they make um, a range of broadband and wireless products, particularly as the current owner of Ruckus Wireless. Uh, and they also do a bunch of 5G stuff. And this ransomware group got in, stole a bunch of data, and has now started sharing that information because Comscope won't pay. Comscope says that they didn't get any, <laughs> said in their public announcement that they didn't get anything basically that was worthwhile or of value. And so now they're sharing all of the personal data on the company's more than 30,000 employees, <laughs> including invoices, company files, bank documents, and employee passports. Oof. So... Not a good look. Um, not a good look Definitely for Comscope look. at all. Um, and it sort of highlights the vulnerability that we have around the major vendors. They can get hacked. Um, Comscope is, you know, with 30,000 employees is a massive organization, sort of, you know, right. and has significant right. value. Um, been around for like 50 years and, you know, they're being embarrassed in public here. There's no reason why this couldn't happen to any of our suppliers that you know you know, and I, there are reasons to be concerned and write clauses into contracts and say, if you're hacked, you owe me money sort of thing. It's completely acceptable. Yeah. We really need to find another way to, you know, onboard and pay employees without needing their social security numbers because it's just information that companies, their employers aren't going to do a good job of protecting and it's sensitive and leads to identity theft, the burden of which dealing with is going to fall on the employees themselves. So yeah, we, we've got to find a better way to do this kind of thing. Mm, well, I don't really know what a social security number is because I've never been a part of that. So, But at this point, I assume that, you know, just about everybody's social security number is a known, it might just as well be publicly listed on a website. There's enough of them out there. If you, you might as well. Right. If you're putting them together, I'm not necessarily <laughs> well. sure. 
that's a bit of a cynical view, but yeah, you'd be right. But I think that uh, that gate has well and truly been opened, and the horse is well and truly bolted, and it's three hills over the other way and still going. So yeah. All right. Uh, moving on, F five has reported financial results for its second fiscal quarter of twenty twenty three. Revenue grew eleven percent year over year to seven hundred three million, with a net income of eighty one million. The company's forecasting low to mid single digit revenue growth for the full year, which probably leads into the next part of the story. And that Reuters is reporting F five is going to lay off nine percent of its staff, which comes to six hundred twenty three employees. Reuters says the company is also going to cut executive bonuses and cut back on spending on office space and executive travel uh, because of. Uh, rising interest rates and macroeconomic uncertainty affecting customer spending. So F5 is looking to cut costs. Yeah, kind of had to. Um, basically, although they exceeded the numbers that they talked about, their future projections were pretty um, not good. Basically, they're stuck. Uh, share price is now down 35% for the year, having fallen from $200 now down to 145 I think. No, 134 um, After this announcement, the share price fell about 10%, then popped up a little bit as people came in. Uh, to clean it up, uh, to buy on the on the downride. I think F five buy the dip. Yeah, I think F five's been plodding along for a while. They had their load balances and application networking, and then they acquired Nginx to try and get into container networking and service meshing. And I don't think that they've really been able to create a dominant position there. There's more service meshes than there are armpits in the IT industry, and I don't think that F five is going to dominate unless they've got customer who's got an incumbent base. So really all they're doing is retaining existing customers. They attempted to rebrand as a security company. So the obvious thing is once you're doing application networking, you're already a firewall uh, in every way that matters technologically. So they put some threat detection and so forth on, but that market's very competitive and I don't think F5's got a standout story. So, you know, they've done pretty well to retain their earnings and stay on target. They haven't really upset the market. And it's the fashion, of course, right now to throw employees out the door under a bus, actually put more like under a train. Um, so they'll probably do that so that they can say, yes, yes, we're being efficient. We're saving money. Don't don't mark down our share price. And the market went ahead and did that anyway. So. Right. Uh, nice to see that they're also cutting executive bonuses. I feel like if you're firing people, then the exec shouldn't make extra money. Mm. So I, that's a thumbs up for me. But uh, yeah, I guess they had initially projected 9 to 11% uh, revenue increase for the full fiscal year. And now that's down to uh, <laughs> what they call a low to mid single digit. So yeah, uh, I think F5's problem is, of course, <laughs> if you're not growing, you're dying. So in, the, in F5's case, there was an expectation that they would grow strongly. And the share price reflected that. And now that they're not able to do that quarter after quarter, by the way, um, it's hard not to say that F5 is a slur, you know, a, fall, a falling star for the time being until they can find some way to turn around. Hard to imagine they will. Still got a market cap of $8 billion, still a significant IT company by any means, but uh, hard to imagine that they, um, how they'll turn it around at this point in time. I mean, almost three quarters of a billion dollars in a quarter is a pretty good number. But uh, as always, the, the stock market wants to know what you're going to do for them tomorrow, not today. So yeah, growth is, is prized. Yeah, and you and, need to and grow. Lack in, of growth is punished. Yeah, especially in a market which is falling and people are expecting wind downs. If you follow the market down, then yeah. But I, I, I just, I looked at F5. I spent some time pulling through their products again in preparation for today. There's really nothing going on there that's, standout or innovative or market leading it's very much a following the market if that makes sense so it's hard to make a case that f5 is will return to growth in the next quarter i don't see that and the market has possibly gone to come up with the same opinion 
Uh, speaking of not growing, the website Starlink Insider says Starlink is lowering prices for its satellite broadband service in multiple European countries, including Germany, Spain, and France. And Ireland and or just about all the European countries got a 50% cut, up to 50%. Mostly Oof. it was 40 and it was 50 so where before it was like 100 to 120 euros a month, it's now down to the 45 to 60 euros a month across the board. It was just done. Nobody got a warning or whatever. It's just an announcement. All Starlink customers got an email today basically saying, congratulations, it's now 50% cheaper. And I also noticed that the hardware has dropped substantially. So instead of it being 500, you know, the equivalent of 500 US dollars, it's now down to 350 so close to half, you know, 30% off buying the dishes. Now, the question then becomes, why do I care? Or what does this mean to people at large? And when I did some digging here, I went to realize that the first thing is that Europe has a very high density of wireless in the form of 4G and 5G, which means if you can get 4G or 5G just about everywhere, you probably don't need Starlink just to connect to the internet. You could just use your phone for a lot of stuff. If you need to connect your computer... You can connect through a smartphone or you can even get a, you know, some sort of broadband link just about everywhere in Europe. Unlike America, mm -hmm. you can get high speed internet mm -hmm. just about everywhere. So maybe Starlink isn't achieving the sort of penetration goals that it wanted in Europe. Well, okay, fine. But why is, why is it discounting? Um, so I went poking around inside of the space community and some of the space analysts came up with the fact that SpaceX uh, probably needs significantly more funding to continue with Starship which is consuming huge amounts of money. So did you see the Starship launch this week? Yes, yes. I did. Yes. So <laughs> the analysts were saying before the launch is as long as Starship can get off the ground and get up to, you know, sort of where the, the first stage separates, then they'll be able to get a funding round away. And that we now expect that SpaceX will put out a, another funding round looking for more money, selling off some more shares to be able to get more funding to compete it because they've spent a lot of money building a production line. I think they've got eight to 10 starships in production at this particular point in time. And wow. the first one, this launch that happened this week, wasn't actually expected to come off the ground. It really was expected to just fail before it launched. And, you know, they had their trial during the first uh, Monday, had the first trial, and something went wrong. I'm not going to get into details. Go and look it up yourself. This launch had a frozen valve. It was a frozen, frozen valve. valve. And then this launch had to restart the count at 40 seconds several times while they went through some trials and problems. And then as the uh, rocket launched, several of the engines failed. Now, when I say several, it has 33. And by my count, six of them weren't alight at some point during the launch. Three engines failed early and another three failed deeper into the, as it passed through Max-Q. So there are certainly problems with it, but the fact that they were able to on what is fundamentally the second attempt at a launch, get it up. And, you know, they weren't over to do the very controversial rollover maneuver. That was, you know, when you're basically turning a 10-story building over in midair at supersonic <laughs> speeds, kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of a thing. So I think that the launch yesterday was successful enough for them to start looking about another funding round and basically proves the worthiness of Starship to be a viable way to get enough um, Starlink satellites into space to reduce the build cost of that network. And I think seeing the price discount on Starlink is we need more subscribers as well for that same process. And so the discount in Europe is to try and drive up uh, subscriptions with the expectation that they'll be able to increase the price later once they've got people connected to the network, like we've seen with 
broadband providers across the world. I mean, to, to ask in Europe where uh, broadband competition is is robust, uh, wireless 5G access is uh, widespread mm-hmm. to ask people to shell out for uh, equipment for a satellite service to get a, an internet service that's probably a little bit more latency, going to give you more latency than what you could get with a terrestrial service. Is, it, it's hard to ask for a lot of money for that, so I'm not surprised they, they've cut prices. Here in the U.S., it's entirely a different story. Uh, we don't have a lot of competition. Uh, in many regions, service is not great, so the, the, the satellite broadband is a much more compelling uh, offering, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm glad to see they're here and making competition happen in the U.S., uh, but yeah, Europe's a much different story. Yeah, very much so. That's Australia is also a popular market. Um, there was also some discussion on uh, forums that I was looking at suggesting that prices were also substantially reduced in Brazil. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but my bet is, is that there'll be a request for funding sometime in the next, <laughs> you know, uh, month or two. Right. And don't be surprised when it right. comes around. And it's probably a sign that, you know, SpaceX is going to capitalize on it and get more money under its belt because it needs it to keep building it. And they need Starship to reduce the cost of a launch of a satellite because they need to keep lifting up Starlink satellites in volume to build that network out. And they need to keep doing it because those satellites don't last more than a couple of years before they uh, run out of fuel. Like any good capitalist enterprise, SpaceX will take as much money from the government as it can. Uh, Well, yeah, but it's a different story. All right, our last story for the day, our surfing dog story. Netflix has announced it will stop sending DVDs via mail. Uh, September 29th, 2023 will be the final day DVDs are mailed and customers will have until October 27th to return them. Uh, so thus ends the <laughs> Netflix's <laughs> origins uh, and then transformation to a streaming service. Ah, back in the days when you'd go to the video shop and you'd walk around looking for the movie to rent on a Friday night <laughs> and then you'd go and buy uh-huh. a pizza and then you'd all go home. Like... And nowadays, what do we do? We don't do any of that. You know, grumpy old man. Don't need to ever leave the house ever. (laughs) It is is interesting, isn't it? It's just fun to think that even in 2023, still doing the mail out of these DVDs Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. its customers. And in the US, it's obviously not worldwide. Um, And it just reminds me that closing down old profitable businesses just doesn't happen. They just run forever. So- you know, they might not be growing at a huge percentage or whatever. This is this is still a hundred and forty-five million a quarter business. But when you realize wow. that um Netflix is making eight billion a quarter in streaming, that's half a percent of revenue. So mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. you know, we laugh in enterprise IT that, you know, we always keep the old <laughs> stuff around. But you know what? It's making money. It's making money. I mean, you have to sort of respect Netflix for being able to say, even though this might be making us a little money, it's it's not growing. Uh, we want to put our efforts into streaming, so we're just going to cut it. Uh, lots of companies have a hard time giving up on that or changing something that seems to be working. So, you know, kudos to them for being able to cut it and say, yeah, we're done. I've got an idea for a startup, Joe. Uh, I think there's a $145 million dollar opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I guess <laughs> maybe Blockbuster can make a comeback. <laughs> to me, it's interesting because I used to use this service all the time, and I remember getting the red envelopes in the mail, and it was a delight. Uh, and it does harken back to a time when postal mail had better throughput than consumer internet. That's right. I'd remember that. In a better time when the yeah. world was cleaner and nicer. <laughs> 
Uh, all right. Well, that wraps up the news, uh, and we don't have a tech bite. So, Greg, where can folks get more from you if they want to uh, engage with I'm you? I'm still online? out there on the Twitters. I'm still doing my thing. Although people seem to be leaving the platform, I get less and less engagement. But I still haven't found anywhere that's as much fun uh, to be. So I'm still there for the time being. Don't hesitate to hit me up. And if you've got any questions or any feedback, packetpushers.net-fu. Uh, and don't forget our newsletter, uh, Human Infrastructure Magazine, was a good one this week. Apparently, I found a whole bunch of snark and, vi- and vim and vigor on a bunch of links, and you might be interested in reading that. Yeah, I'm Drew Connery-Murray. I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM, also on Mastodon, uh, Mastodon Social as Drew underscore CM if you want to find me there. Uh, thank you for joining us for another episode of Network Break. There's even more nerdy conversation on networking cloud, Kubernetes, and others. Just surf over to packetpushes.net and dive in. As always, thanks for listening.